You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And we also have the privilege of having the intern for TVCI department, Nathan Campbell, joining us. Nathan has been such a gift for our department. We have a little bit of fun with him on the show, but just so you know, that's kind of the spirit of this podcast is banter, doing this as brothers and sisters, and sometimes brothers and sisters, you know, poke at each other a little bit. You've heard that from Jen, JT, and I, and we welcome Nathan into that today. Uh, and his contributions are so helpful for the podcast, so we hope you enjoy it. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of sin. We think this is a crucial topic because it affects everyone, everywhere, and everything. So we hope you enjoy the discussion. All right. Well, I'm glad that we're joined today by Nasty Nate, the TVCI intern. How you doing, Nathan? I'm good, Kyle. Listen, uh, contrary to popular belief, we have honored our intern. We love him. We're so grateful for him. Did you bring coffee? I brought some for myself. But what about for the rest of us? Oh. No? Nothing? Nothing. Okay. Well, I'll just have to say that uh, your one responsibility for today, as always, is to bring us doctored coffee just the way we like it. Right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, man. Man, you're gonna, people you're, are going to be lining up to intern with us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. They're like, okay, here we go. Uh, you know what? Today we're talking about a topic where there might not be as much friendly laughter and banter. We're talking about the doctrine of sin. And I, this is where we would cue like the, the organ playing like, you know, big music. Because normally when we get to talking through the doctrine of sin, uh, we kind of have dour faces and we begin to approach it because it's a sober topic. I mean, we're thinking about the fallenness of humanity and the brokenness of the world. It's hard to kind of, you know, tell one-liners and, you know, have drum beats go, you know, when we're talking about sin, it's not like we're waiting for a laugh track. And so today we're going to dive in. We think this is an important topic to talk about because it has affected the whole world. This is one of those topics that is unavoidable. Some have said that regardless of what people believe about God and the world, something that we can all generally agree upon is that it seems like things are broken. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems like things are messed up. And so we need to begin just by asking the question, what is sin and where does it come from? Jen Wilkin. You want me to start? I think you'd be an excellent speaker. On All this right, topic. great. So chivalrous of you um, opening the door. <laughs> <laughs> sin is, I, I mean, I think the most basic definition for it would be rebellion against God. Another way you can say it is elevating my will above God's mm. will. Mm-hmm. Anybody yeah. got something else? I feel like the first time I ever heard somebody talk about this right when I became a Christian was just saying it's it's missing the mark. Like in terms of right. understanding mm-hmm. sin is an action mm-hmm. that rebels against God's character, nature, mm-hmm. and will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I like, so Bavink, do I get any points with you? But um, You do. That's okay. a lot of points. Thank I you. should have worn my Bavink shirt today. You no, should it's have. okay. You should <laughs> It's okay that he didn't wear it. (laughs) If you walk into his office, it's like uh, the Bovink fan club. It is. It's like posters, Mm -hmm. shirts, mugs. Well, Bovink says, at its heart, sin is religious revolt against God. And the appropriately summarized term for it is lawlessness. Mm -hmm. This idea that it's cosmic rebellion that it's spiritual terrorism, that sin is uh, not just that we made a bad decision or that our parents, 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 all the way back to Adam and Eve made a bad decision, but it's that cosmic treason has happened. Rebellion has happened against God and his authority. So where does sin come from? If that's, if we're playing around with this definition of what is sin, where, where does it come from? 
Yeah, I think the best place to start is in Genesis 3. Okay, open us up, man. So here we, here we go. We, we start with Genesis 1, of course. God creates, and it was good. It was very good that he created man. And maybe just to pause you there real quick, something I think is really important, which is exactly what you're doing, is our anthropology, our understanding of humanity, doesn't begin in Genesis 3. Yeah. It does begin in Genesis chapter mm-hmm. 1. Yeah. So sometimes when we get in, at least some of the circles I've run in, like we have this really, really over-torqued understanding of original sin and total depravity, which we should have a full and thick understanding of what it means to be in rebellion and sin against God. But ultimately, humanity and creation is also ultimately good. Yeah. yeah. So really seeing Genesis 3 as a fall from something. That's there exactly was another, right. like we, mm-hmm. we, we were before Genesis 3. That's right. So. Because we have a superior intern, he started in Genesis 1. Yeah. I know. I'm so proud. I'm kind of glowing over here like, like, like a mother who has just had a baby. Mm, okay. Take it away, Nathan. <laughs> so I think, I think a lot of times when we think about sin, people object, well, it's just a piece of fruit. Why is it such a big deal? But I think that's, that's the wrong question. They didn't eat it because they were hungry. Right. They did it because they were arrogant. Yeah. They thought they were better than God. Um, essentially, they're either calling God either a liar or a lunatic. Mm-hmm. They said, God said, if you eat this fruit, you'll surely die. And I said, no, I know better than you, God. Either I think that what you said will not come to fruition or it's not true of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's rooted in this arrogance that they don't realize that since God created them in his image, um, that he he is superior over them. He is their creator. Um, So what are some of the, I think you're hitting at kind of a high level view of, of what's happening in Genesis 3. When we jump in, when we dive into Genesis 3, what is really happening there? What are some of the nuts and bolts of this transgression? Well, the serpent suggests to Eve that God is holding out on her. Mm. And what he suggests to her is that God is um, determined that she not be like him in a way that is desirable. And so we, it's a little confusing because we just read in Genesis 1 that we're created in his image. So there's some aspect of becoming like God that is actually rebellious and not healthy for us. And and that's what the serpent is holding out to her. And that's what she reaches for is to become like God in a way that she's not intended to be. Yeah, that's really good. I read a, I forget what I was reading the other day, but it was, it said something very similar. It said that ultimately we are supposed to be God-like and godly, that we're made in his, his image. The difference between uh, what God originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2 and then what happens in Genesis 3 is we try to be like God without God. Yeah. We try mm, to become yeah. gods like ourselves. Yeah. And I think you could even talk about maybe Philippians chapter 2 here that, that Christ is this other image bearer who doesn't grasp after being God, mm-hmm. but rather is able to be, he is God and is God-like, but he doesn't have to grasp for it the way Adam and Eve tried to. Yeah. Well, I think they're given the they're given the mandate to reflect God and they choose instead to rival God. That's mm-hmm. what you see in the fall. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to use that. They were given the chance to well, reflect I'm God and they to chose to rival <laughs> God. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the role of the word of God and being twisted in Genesis 3, right? Because th- that's happening. What And what is happening there with what God has said, with the uh, voice of Satan, and then with the belief of Adam and Eve. What, what's happening there? Yeah, I mean, the most simple... Uh, explanation is that Satan and not just Satan but uh, all evil and spiritual forces of wickedness uh, don't just rebel from God's word rather they try to twist God's Mm -hmm. word and so you look at this over the course of certainly the biblical uh, timeline but even church history uh, heresy false belief rebellion roots from a twisting or a misunderstanding of God's word it doesn't ever like like heresy for example or looking back at Genesis chapter 3 it doesn't start with like a rival word it starts with twisting God's word Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So what's the immediate reaction? So they eat of the fruit of the tree. What immediately happens after that? Well, nothing. And I think that's the significant point is that when Eve eats the fruit, she does not immediately die. Hmm. And so God is a liar. And so then Adam eats the fruit because clearly the serpent is the one who has told the truth. But they're, as soon as they taste it, they are surely dying. Hmm. So <laughs> you just said there's a sound bite there that I wouldn't want us to leave out that you said right. God, God is, is a liar. liar. Right. So speak a little bit more. <laughs> speak a little bit more to that. Well, from their perspective, because they don't instantly perish, they have reason then to give credibility to the serpent. And I think there's a lesson in there for us, right? That God gives us good and true words that um, we understand over time. And uh, that, but that we should trust his word at the outset because of who he is. Yeah. So it's so, kind of a pattern there that you see that we all encounter. Right. So they don't die, but they do start to experience shame. Right. right? Immediately. Right. Immediately. So right. We, what we find is that the eyes of both were uh, opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they hear the sound of the Lord. And what do they do? And what's incredible is they hear the sound of the Lord and the Lord's not like rushing at them. What the heck? Like, what just happened? Oh my right, gosh. Right, right. It is. The Lord walking in the cool of the day, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. looking for his image bearers whom he loves. Yeah. yeah, And what do they do? They hide. They hide, right? And why Why do they hide? I think any one of us could talk about our own experience in this too. When mm-hmm. we feel shame and guilt, uh, we run. Yeah, we and, and, and we isolate. Cover ourselves, isolate. Right? We just feel like we got to withdraw, got to get away from any view. We don't want anyone to see us at a horizontal level. We certainly don't want to see. And one of the things about this passage that has always just astounded me is that what sin causes almost immediately is this sensibility of I'm going to hide from God's presence in God's world. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right, which is kind of the lunacy of sin yeah. is that sin forces us or or brings us to a place where we go, okay, I'm going to use God's world to hide from God's presence and mm-hmm. that just can't happen. The Lord sees all, but also it's his world. He's Lord over all things. And so the Lord comes and approaches them and they begin to talk. And then there's this pronouncement of curses. What's happening in the curses? <laughs> what, what are the curses? What's going on there? There's, there seemed to be a curse on the serpent, curse on the woman, curse on the man. And then theologians have also sent a curse on the land. So uh, nasty Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe just give us a little bit on, uh, you know, the curse on the serpent. What's happening there in Genesis 3, and particularly verse 15? Yeah, I think it's important caveat beforehand, before you get into the curses, to realize that in humans, that we still bear the image of God, that the image of God is marred in us. It's smudged, maybe. Um, But we still fully maintain. You can look at Genesis 9. Mm -hmm. uh, Throughout Scripture, it maintains that we still bear the full image of God, regardless of gender, age, ability, race, you bear the image of God. Um, C.S. Lewis pictured it this way. He said that um, when God pours wine into us to decant it, we throw poison in it as well. And so we're just slightly twisting um, the good gift that God has given us. And so I think what he's doing here is he is um, taking what they have done and, and punishing them for it. And there's, there's a response that has to happen for a sin. And that, I think that we see that in the person of Jesus as well, is that Jesus shows us how seriously God takes sin. Yeah. That there is or there needs to be a response from God to our sinful rebellion. And, and this is where it begins. But in 15, it's the first gospel. It's, um, it's the first time that um, 
the gospel is spoken, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. And theologians have talked about this as the proto-evangelion, the first gospel of where it's, it's the first pronouncement that um, Jesus will come and he will bruise the head of the serpent. And so it's the first good news that we're going to hear in the scripture. Right, that the curse uh, is not going to just be allowed to continue unchecked. That's right. That one is going to come and it's going to be the seed of the woman. Right. Um, and that that seed is going to crush the head of the one who has turned things upside down. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great truth. There's a few significant things to me in this passage. The first is that when God comes inquiring, he doesn't inquire of the serpent. Hmm. There's no redemption for the serpent. He inquires of the man and the woman, which opens the idea that there will be redemption for hmm. them. I've never seen that. That's and good. then when um, when the curses are stated, um, he basically is saying, guess what life is like now that this has happened? Hmm. Instead of co-laboring with one another, you're going to compete with one another. Hmm. And then those are, you know, fleshed out in particular ways. But I love that after this really terrible pronouncement is made of this is what the world is now going to be like and embedded in it is this hopeful statement that Nathan just pointed out. What Adam seems to take away from it is that last sentence in the chapter. It says that he he names the woman Eve because she's the mother of all living. And he, what did he hear? And everything that God said, the thing that stuck with him was she's going to be the one through whom redemption ultimately comes. Even in light of the curse that's put on the woman. Right. Would you maybe speak to that for just a minute? Um, Well, you know, I think that you may not, I'm going to state my unpopular opinion. The text does not actually say. That's never stopped you before. I know. (laughs) The text states explicitly that the serpent and the ground are cursed. So I'm not trying to say that there is not a curse implicit in what is spoken to the man and the woman, but I do think it's significant that it doesn't say cursed you will be to the woman or the man. Because just a couple chapters later, he's going to pronounce a curse on Cain. So he's capable of directly cursing the humans, and he does not. And so I think that it's important that we look at this and temper the way we read it as descriptive versus prescriptive. Okay. That is my personal take on it. You guys can push back on that if you want. But No, the only thing that comes to mind for me there is in Galatians where it's talking about the curse of the law. Mm-hmm. But that that wouldn't necessarily be right from mm-hmm. Genesis 3. That's more of a the, the idea that the law has amplified mm-hmm. essentially the... Uh, effects of sin mm-hmm. or the noticeable impact of sin. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I, guess, I guess this wouldn't be a curse either, but something else that sometimes get left out in terms of uh, like themes in biblical theology here that we find <laughs> in this chapter is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and following. It says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us mm-hmm. in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out mm-hmm. from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. That language sent him out is fracturing mm-hmm. language in terms yeah. of the storyline of the Bible that we are now living not in the presence of God, but in exile from God. So you think about uh, Israel then living in in, uh, in Egypt and then re-inheriting the land through Joshua and the conquest, but then the Assyrian and Babylonian kingdom sending them out into exile in Babylon. And then ultimately the New Testament opens up with this theme of exile that we're still waiting for this new exodus or the presence of God to come in. Here we see this in Genesis chapter 3, that perhaps one of the most significant things to happen from humanity is to be sent out from the presence of God. So rather than dwelling in our midst, we are now living in a world, a fractured world in a sense by ourselves, in need of God 
coming for us. Yeah. I think of uh, Tolkien's quote, all of our nature is soaked with a sense of exile. Mm -hmm. The world is permeated with a sense of exile that everything feels itself east of Eden, right? Outside. To me, one of the most heartbreaking statements in this whole chapter is in verse 24 where it says he drove out the Mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. Like you see there evidence that Adam and Eve are aware of their loss. Mm -hmm. Like it's not as though they get their box of belongings with the house plant and the pictures from their desk (laughs) and walk out or escorted out of the building. They have to be driven out of the garden because they're, they, they are aware of what they're losing. Yeah. We, we could also, one of the things we talk about when we teach this in the training program is that you can't read a more tragic story than Genesis chapter three. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't care uh, what movie book, whatever, whatever, like the, the most tragic story that you've ever heard of, pales in comparison to what happens in Genesis chapter 3 because every tragedy that results in human experience ultimately finds its birth here in these verses. Yeah. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. Ten Women Who Changed the World is Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. Ten Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at CourageForLifeBible.com. That's CourageForLifeBible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. And a lot of times when we're talking about sin and its impact, we... Particularly in evangelical circles, I find that we stress the impact of sin on individuals, on people. Mm -hmm. But I think the curse on the land here, the curse on the ground, is an indication that there are cosmic implications, Mm -hmm. right, to sin. Mm -hmm. Sin has not just broken us as individuals. Sin has broken the cosmos, the world, the land, the ground, and what we might build there. So let's spend just a few moments reflecting on sin's impact cosmically and uh, and sin's impact on the land. And I think broadly there, we could group in what we might call systemic sin or systemic injustice. So what are some of the cosmic implications of sin when we think about brokenness? Right, like this is a really good point. In my experience in evangelicalism, we do emphasize the individual Uh, implications of sin more than the corporate, but if we as Christians are willing to only lament personal sin, but not also lament and mourn over societal or cosmic sin, our understanding of righteousness and our understanding of sin is basically null and void, because I think you're exactly right. There is this massive cosmic impact, and so you think about um, all of the systemic injustices that have happened over the course of human history, 
a denial of those things is ultimately a denial of original sin mm-hmm. and a denial of total depravity. So you think about the things that are happening in our current day, abortion. Ever since Roe v. Wade, there's been 60 million abortions. You think about the refugee crisis. Over 3,000 people are dead and at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea as they were trying to flee mm. injustice. 11 million displaced Syrians today. You think of uh, Michael Gerson has a quote where he says, racism is the original sin of our country. And so you think about the, the, the racial tensions that exist in our current society. All of these systemic injustices ultimately find their root here in Genesis chapter 3. And it doesn't take long after Genesis 3 for us to see structural societal sin. Right. Like mm-hmm. Babel. I mean, Genesis... Chap- which, yeah, chapter yeah. 4 through 11 is oh, ultimately exactly. like this tailspin. Where, mm-hmm. where, you know, in Genesis 4, I think it says every thought, like God, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, the increasing corruption on the earth with Noah, where it says every thought and inclination of their heart was evil. Mm-hmm. And Noah was like the righteous man, like mm-hmm. the one. And so... It seems like society quickly just untethered. It broke. And then even after the flood at Babel, where there's the, what, what's happening at Babel? It's a retelling of the story of Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. right? It's like we want to be as God, so we will build a tower way up high. Only man could think like this. You mm-hmm. know, like <laughs> we want to build a giant tower. And once we're on top of that, we will be as God. But it doesn't take long at all for sin to have uh, to show itself in societal structures mm-hmm. and in the brokenness of the world. And you're right; we could think of we we could have a whole podcast, ten whole podcasts, just talking about the way that sin impacts structures and society. It also seems to be that this is the way that the prophets are most often identifying the sin and idolatry within Israel. Is that they're not just speaking to individuals, though they certainly do. We're not denying that at all. But they're most often speaking to the corporate life of Israel as a whole, as they're participating not in righteousness and justice, but in idolatry and injustice. Right. Like you know, I'm thinking of Amos in particular right. here, where Amos is just calling out the sins of gluttony and calling out the sins of wealth in the face of injustice or mm-hmm. wealth on the back of injustice. Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right. The prophets do take up this mantle. And I think we see it too, if not explicitly in the teaching of Jesus, implicitly throughout the ministry of Jesus, where he's stepping into structures that are broken societally. And he is saying, no, 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 no. This is not how the kingdom is supposed to be, right? You think the prodigal, uh, the, the, not the prodigal, the parable of the good Samaritan is him saying, how broken is it? Mm-hmm. That people in the name of purity and religion could pass by mm-hmm. somebody who is in dire need, right? How how could they possibly do that? And so if, if, if sin has broken structures and systems and it's also broken us, I think we need to answer the question, who is a sinner? Who is a sinner and what does it mean to be a sinner? I think we can just go to Romans 3.23 here. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I had a professor in college say that all means all and that's all all means. <laughs> <laughs> Profound. It, yeah. I knew I knew that you would be bringing some really hot wisdom for us today, and you are you are delivering. And so I think I think we have to have this understanding that every one of us, from the smallest to the most powerful, um, we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and so I think we have this mythical idea of a man on an island who has never heard the law before. He dies alone on the island. But Romans 1 through 3 talks about that even someone like that has a law written on his heart mm-hmm. and that he has a law unto himself that he can't even live up completely. He has a volleyball and he tries to take care of it that has his face on it, but he can't even take care of that perfectly. 
And and that I even love shows. I that movie, by the way. That was a good reference. Good, Nathan. You are you, big, are you a big Tom Hanks fan? I do like Tom Hanks. You know what? I I really I think I could have predicted that. Are you not? Hang on. That feels a little um, condescending. The way oh. you just said that. No, no, do no. Do you no. not like Tom Hanks? Because I'd like you to be on the record about that. No, right no, no. Now. I I very much enjoy okay. Tom Hanks. Yes. Because I do he's not great. think Castaway is a great movie, but I do think. Tom Hanks is a great actor. That scene where he comes back and they throw him a party and they serve seafood. Mm. <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we have <laughs> like we tend to do, but this is a good episode to maybe get a little breath of fresh air. Somebody right now that's been listening to the car is like, oh, wow, man, I, can, yeah. I can breathe for wait, a wait, second. Wait, wait, I can bring us back. Okay. So, you, so Nathan just brought up the whole issue of the law <laughs> and it being written on our hearts. And um, we had that great Bob Inc. quote where you sucked up to JT earlier, Kyle, and, and that sin is lawlessness. And this is an important thing for us to understand as believers because oftentimes um, we, we become a Christian and we come to view the law then as continuing to be our enemy. Uh, that it's something that condemns us. And um, what we're seeing is that if sin is lawlessness, then by definition, righteousness would be lawfulness. That yeah, we, obedience. as the children mm-hmm. of God, um, cannot wait to obey the good and perfect law of the one who's delivered us from sin and death. So in answer to the question, who is a sinner? We say, well, everybody is everybody. born broken. Mm-hmm. Everybody's born broken. Mm-hmm. It's like what G- that old G.K. Chesterton story where, you know, uh, the uh, London Times asked a question of, hey, what, what's wrong with the world? And everybody's submitting these long answers. Economists are saying wealth disparity, yeah. education, education reform, education mm-hmm. reform, all these things. And Chesterton just writes back a two word response. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I am the problem with the world. Because the, the, all of the evil we see out in the world has roots mm-hmm. in the life of our heart. Um, so if that's what it means to be a sinner, how do we discern if an action is sinful? So if, so let's imagine that this person is listening to it and they're a believer. They're like, okay, how am I supposed to discern whether an action is sinful? How would you teach them? How would you counsel them? How do we know if an action is sinful? Well, we examine it on the horizontal and the vertical axis. First okay. on the vertical axis, right? I mean, actually, we just covered this in the Matthew study last night. The great command is love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does this action allow me to love God? And secondly, does this action allow me to love my neighbor as I love myself? What would you say if somebody said, um, well, what I'm saying is not explicitly prohibited in Scripture, or this thing that I want to do is not explicitly prohibited in Scripture? How much do you respond to that? Yeah, I think we have to be slow to call things sin. The Bible doesn't call sin. Yeah. So when I used to work in student ministry, I used to walk students through some sort of a filter. So I start with Scripture. You know, what does Scripture say? Does Scripture have an explicit statement on it? But I think beyond that, Scripture gives other sort of caveats to discern the sinfulness of an action. And I think one of those is our conscience. Does your, is your conscience pricked by this? Does it, is, it, is it moved by the thing you're about to do? I, I look through, um, does it harm the weaker brother mm-hmm. in the room? Um, I, I look at, you know, where the church authorities say, where the church global, historic say, um, is, it, is it wise? Will it harm your, your, your witness? So I think those are some of the, the filters that I think through when I approach a sin without labeling something a sin that's not explicitly in Scripture a sin. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and really all of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, he's always pushing on motive, right? Mm-hmm. And so even if I can justify, justify a particular action, 
if on closer inspection I recognize that I am doing that action for the wrong motive, it's still sin. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, godly obedience is right motive plus right action, which, you know, Jesus calls us to a deeper obedience to the law than has previously been observed by those who were the most religious in everyone's eyes. And that's a that's a harder challenge, right? Like I, I just want it to be about what my hands are doing uh, instead of what my heart is thinking yeah. while my hands are doing that. Yeah, I would be, we, we cannot not cover this. I would like, I feel like I'd lose all of my like self-worth if we don't talk about Augustine. <laughs> wow. Well, right? we can't Which have is that. That's a hard issue. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We that. need to spend some time off air. I'll, I'll never forget one of, uh, just as I was first being introduced to this doctrine of original sin, there's this, and we can no way do justice to this entire co- church controversy that happens in the early church between a guy named Pelagius and then Augustine mm-hmm. and how they define sin differently. I think why it's important to maybe address this real quick on the podcast is because a lot of evangelicals totally unintentionally buy into kind of a Pelagian understanding yeah. of sin where Augustine is giving us a far better definition. So when Genesis chapter 3 is read by these two uh, theologians in the early church, it's read very, very differently. So, for example, Pelagius, when he reads Genesis chapter 3, he would say something along the lines of, Adam sinned, but in no way did he implicate the rest of us. So Kyle Worley, Jen Wilkin, and Nathan Campbell and J.T. English are not affected at all through Adam's sin, other than we have a bad example now, and we're simply in need of a better example. And so we have this better example in Jesus, Pelagius would say. And Augustine comes along and he says, no, 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 this is, an entirely, this is entirely the wrong way to read. This original sin by Adam plunges all of us into death. Mm-hmm. And so not we, we shouldn't, if you find yourself just talking about sin as a category of action, not a state of being, mm-hmm. you're a little bit outside the bounds of what scripture is defining mm-hmm. as sin. And mm-hmm. so when we think about sin, we're talking about this is a matter of nature first. And secondly, it's a matter of action. We're acting out from those natures. Mm-hmm. So Augustine is saying, we all sinned in Adam which I think is what Romans chapter five highlights. Pelagius would say Adam sinned and we all have our own individual sins afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the gospel I think makes incredibly clear. I'll just read here from Romans chapter five. Uh, it says this, Romans five verses 12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So I think what's what's there is that in some sense, all of us were in Adam yeah. in this original mm-hmm. sin. We were in Adam and Eve because we were part- human participants in this cosmic rebellion. We don't simply participate in our own little small rebellions, but we were in the garden sinning against Adam or sinning against God. And we all have now been sent into exile in need of reconciliation and redemption. I've always loved how R.C. Sproul would talk about this. He would say that we resent that Adam was our representative mm-hmm. because we actually believe that we would have chosen differently mm-hmm. in his place. And he would always say, you know, you really think that the God of the universe didn't choose the right person to be there mm-hmm. in that moment. You really think you would have done differently. You absolutely wouldn't have. And, mm-hmm. you know, we do feel like, hey, I got a raw deal because how do I know that Adam was the right person mm-hmm. for that moment? But we know that Adam was the right person for that moment because he's the one that God placed there. Yeah, and our yeah. doctrine of the fall has implications for our doctrine of salvation. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we buy into this kind of false notion of original sin that Pelagius puts forward, we're in need of following the example of Jesus Christ in mm-hmm. order to be saved. But if Augustine is right, all we need is a new representative. And that's exactly who Jesus yeah, is for us. Good. So that's we true. think of, of, and I'll just go back to Romans chapter five, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we're either in Adam 
or were in Christ. So for those of us who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, you are not in need of working your way back into God's presence or back into God's good graces. Through Christ, you have a new representative and you are loved in him, cared for in him, and beloved in Jesus Christ. Good news. That's good. That's a good segue too, because I want to land in these last few minutes asking a question that I think is crucial and is often misunderstood. Uh, And so is the Christian, the believer, the one who's placed faith in Christ Jesus, is the Christian still a sinner? You love this question. I love this question question. (laughs) because the, the, the normal answer bothers me considerably. Yeah. Because generally, well, I, I don't, I could go off I on this. Could. I want to hear what y'all have to say to this. Is the Christian still a sinner? How would you respond to that? It feels like a trap to me, so I'm going to sit very still. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so the answer you hate is yes. Yes. Yeah, you hate, you hate it, yes. And I, I think that goes back to this over torqued. Or an unqualified yes, yeah, or for unqual- sure. Yeah, that's right. Are we sinners or saints is really what, what we're getting after here. Right. And so when we talk about ontology mm-hmm. yeah, the answer is no we are in christ yeah there's been a fundamental th- like so if there are only two ways of being in the world in adam and in christ mm-hmm. and born broken to the world we're born in adam that's right scripture says we've been transferred to another kingdom yeah that's right. out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son but oftentimes christians walk around talking like we are still fundamentally a sinner well, as I if could, we're still dead i can't help it you know i'm just a you know i'm just a terrible sinner really i hope that's not true I hope that's not true of you because what that means is that fundamentally you're still in a broken estate in Adam. So here's where you need to help us. Why do we still sin? We still sin because we still have a broken nature, right? I mean, we still have a brokenness within us, but in terms of where we're at, where we actually belong, we're no longer in that identity. And so we're no longer enemies. We're now sons and daughters. Exactly. Exactly. And so the estate, the broken, I guess the, the posture of us being a rebel uh, has been removed. And we've, we've, been been reconciled. Made, we've been reconciled. We've been made sons and daughters. We've been transferred to a new kingdom. But the old impulses still run strong. And we're still battling those. That's what we see in Romans 7, right? I delight in the law of God in my innermost being, but I see another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God, Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And so there has been a deliverance that's happened, or Romans 8, 1 is just not true. Uh, And so I, I, I think that for the believer... Oftentimes we use a misunderstanding about our fundamental identity still being a sinner to justify a life of disobedience or a life of inattentiveness to what God is calling us to in mm-hmm. obedience. That's good. Mm-hmm. If I could too, just for someone who's listening who is a Christian and they say, well, I feel stuck in my sin. I'm a Christian. I'm fundamentally in Christ, not in Adam anymore. Um, I just want to say that you don't need to reason your way out of this. Our tendency is to go back to the law, to find rules, to insulate ourselves, to feel better about our sin. But I think you're right. There's this sort of two options. First John says that either we're, uh, we walk in the darkness or we walk in the light. And so I'll just call you as a believer just to walk in the light, um, that we're not dualists. We don't think that evil has the same sort of power as God does, mm-hmm. but God is able to rescue you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Nasty Nate coming Bring in, batting clean up <laughs> and taking us all home. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us today. Listen, if there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website, trainingthechurch.com. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to be talking with Tim Mackey from The Bible Project on the topic of the Holy Spirit and the Old Testament. See you next time. Grace and peace. Grace and peace.